Hey everybody, this is Justin Jackson, host of the Justin Time Sports Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the Last Dance documentary. We'll talk about a little bit NFL football, we're talking about Dak Prescott, and we're going to talk about the world of sports trying to reopen. I hope you guys sit back, enjoy, and get ready to learn something. Wow, wow, holy crap, wow. The Last Dance episodes 7 and 8 did not disappoint of the Last Dance documentary. It was structured beautifully. I think it was done perfectly. I think these were the two best put together episodes and how they flow back and forth. The documentary has been jumping from 1998 all the way back. And then as they went further, it's been jumping closer and closer together. But I think these two jumps work perfectly. It was jumping from 98 to like 93, 94. And it touched on a lot of different things, starting with his father's murder, which is pretty much the main purpose of episode seven, which led to Jordan's first retirement. Uh, his father was trying to come see him and was murdered on the road after deciding to pull over to take a nap in his car. It was murdered by two 18-year-olds. They were charged with the crime. And that led to his first retirement, which he actually had thought about the year before in 92. He had told his trainer that he wanted to go to baseball, so started training him a little differently so that he can go to baseball. He had told an author of one of the books about him that during the Olympics, he was like, I would go play baseball right now. But Magic Johnson hadn't won three in a row, and the Olympics are going on, so I owe that to people. And his retirement leaked the night before the White Sox game. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, who owns the Bulls, also owns the White Sox. That's actually where Jerry Krause got his start as a scout uh, for the White Sox before he became the GM of the Bulls. And that led to an absolute frenzy, as you can imagine. People were trying to get in the box to get a quote. They're trying to figure out, is it true? Is Michael Jordan really leaving? And due to that, a press conference was called the very next morning. It was due to be, it was due to be done the very next morning. And it led to a media frenzy unlike anything ever seen or maybe even seen now. Over 100 cameras was there and three times the reporters. And just speaking on the gravity of Michael Jordan's impact to the game, David Stern was at his retirement press conference. The commissioner of the National Basketball Association attended a player's retirement press conference. This press conference was watched in schools, as we've seen on the documentary. It was watched outside of the arena. Children were crying in schools as Michael Jordan announced his retirement from the game at only 30 or 31 years old. He commits to joining the White Sox by going to their major league camp on February 7th. And he was supposed to go to single A ball or even rookie camp because Jerry Reinsdorf said in the documentary that they don't send any rookies straight to double A or even or definitely not triple A because the level of competition is too high. Double-A baseball is where they send the absolute top prospects that they expect to call up within six months to a year or maybe a year and a half. A lot of times guys say that's better baseball than Triple-A, which is a bunch of older guys that will never be major league players, but they're still high-quality baseball players, but they moved them up to Triple-A because Double-A is reserved for superstar young guys. That's what guys, if they get hurt and they have to come back off injury, they go to Double-A and not Triple-A. And so he only goes to double A ball in Birmingham because the media demand was too high. They couldn't possibly contain all the media attention that was needed in single A stadiums. So he goes to double A Birmingham, which nobody expected him to do well there. And while he's playing baseball, the Bulls had actually a pretty great season. They won 54 games after winning 56 the previous season with Jordan on the team. And they lose in seven to the Knicks in the Eastern Conference semifinals. Now that series is marred 
in a lot of different things. It has the Kukoc Scotty incident at the end of game three, where Phil Jackson calls a play for Kukoc to shoot the last shot. Scotty decides, well, if I'm not shooting, then I'm not going in. And so he sits down. Kukoc drills the shot, as he had done all season for the Bulls by making six in the previous games that they have been played. That's why Phil felt comfortable throwing the shot into him. But, you know, they had a team meeting after the game where guys expressed their displeasure and their disappointment in Scottie Pippen. Being the new leader of the team and finishing third in the MVP voting that year. And after that emotional meeting where guys were crying, expressing their displeasure, uh, Michael Jordan even called Phil Jackson saying he didn't know if Scottie Pippen would ever live that incident down. Scottie had a resurgence. He had his famous dunk over Patrick Ewing and the Bulls charged back from down 2-0 and ultimately losing seven to the Knicks, who go on to the NBA Finals that year to lose to the Rockets. But while that's happening, Jordan is in Birmingham playing baseball. He has a 13-game hitting streak. He's hitting the ball well. I mean, he's hitting fastballs because guys are just pitching to Michael Jordan. He's a basketball player, so they're not necessarily taking him as seriously as they should. And he had a 13-game hitting streak, and his manager time, legendary baseball manager Terry Francona, looks at some people in the organization and goes, he's never getting he's never getting a fastball in the zone again. And that's what began to happen. They started hitting him with breaking balls. Well obviously Michael Jordan being out of the game for as long as he was started missing the breaking balls. And he went on a bad streak, which led to a Sports Illustrated cover that said uh, Michael Jordan should bag baseball and him and his white socks were bad for baseball and they shouldn't even have done this and it's a bad look for Michael Jordan and the baseball as a whole. And so, in typical Michael Jordan fashion, which is one of the things that made him so great, he spurned Sports Illustrated. And he didn't spurn them because of the magazine cover. He spurned them because he said they never talked to him. He said, if you want to follow me around and you want to ask me questions and interview me and talk to me about an issue and then you write a bad cover, follow me. It's your opinion. I'm not going to shut you down because of that. But he took strong offense to the fact that they never talked to him about it. And he used that as strong motivation. He ends up batting 202 in double A for the season, which was most people all consider a minor miracle. The fact that he was able to get to 200 in his batting average was deemed as something that most people thought was impossible. He also stole 30 bases. He was caught 18 times, but it showed that he had an ability to play baseball. And if he had stuck it out, maybe he becomes a decent player. I don't think he ever gets to the majors. He didn't have enough time. He was already 30 or 31 years old by the time he got to baseball. And they were saying 1,500 at bats, he could have been in the majors. But that places him roughly around age 35. And by that point, I'm not sure Jordan would have been willing to go from the top of the world in basketball to being the king of a sport, to being the face of a league, to all of a sudden riding the bus and being a minor league baseball player for four years just off the hope that you can get into the major leagues one day and be an average major league player. It just wasn't in his mentality. So ultimately, I do think he was going back to basketball either way. I just think the strike ultimately quickened that and gave him an out to go play basketball. I do think he was fully committed to the baseball diamond. His work ethic showed that he was going to commit to it. His dad wanted him to play, and so that was something he could do for his dad. And ultimately, he was really going to commit to that. But the baseball strike allowed him to start going to Bulls practices. B.J. Armstrong talked him into going one. He went to one. And then he went to two. Then he started going to three a week. And speculation ramped up like crazy. Jordan's coming back. Jordan's coming back. And ultimately, he came back and played his first game with about 17 games left in the season, wearing 45. And he wore 45 because he said 23 was connected to his father and still was the number 45. And it was a new birth. It was a new Michael Jordan, so he wanted to wear a new number. Uh, in the 45 jersey, he had the double nickel game in the garden. 
He had some great moments that culminated with a second round matchup against the Orlando Magic with a young Shaq, with Penny Hardaway, with Nick Anderson, with Horace Grant now on the team who had left when the Bulls did a minor redo, adding Steve Kerr and Steve Buscelli and the rest of the crew to the Bulls. And the Bulls took them out in the second round. Uh, Jordan switched to back 23 mid-series when Nick Anderson made an offhand comment about how 45 isn't 23. And so Jordan switches back to 23 to try and get a little bit of swagger back. He plays better, but due to baseball and training like a baseball player, he just wasn't in shape enough. He had a crucial turnover late when he gets stripped from behind to lose one game and then comes down the very next possession and throws a pass out of bounds. And it just shows that Jordan wasn't fully back yet. Ultimately, they do lose that series to the Magic, and that just gives Michael Jordan all the fuel he needs to the fire to get back and train harder. Now, at this time, in the offseason, he's filming Space Jam. And so he requests that they build him a court, and they build him the Jordan Dome, which is the giant enclosed basketball arena. It had a full court, weights, it had everything a basketball trainer could need. And so he had his trainer, Tim Grover, there every day training him while they were filming him. He would film for five, six hours a day, and then he would go train for another three. And it became a basketball summit of sort. Uh, Jordan requested they had guys flown in, or the guys flew in to go play at the Jordan Dome. And it became a thing where he wanted to go play at Space Jam. He wanted to go play at Warner Brothers with Jordan. They had Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, anybody you could think of back then that would have been a great player all wants to go play at the Jordan Dome. Which is similar to what we see with Black House basketball in New York City with the pickup games between LeBron and KD and Melo and the rest of that crew. And you see that now, but it was something that was, at least I was told, didn't exist back then. Guys didn't play against each other in the offseason and make this massive fun buddy experience. And that was good to see that guys did have friends, that that was a thing. That's not some new era soft guy stuff. Well, that was something that people did back then. And it came back and they went on a tear. Um, and just speaking on some of Michael Jordan's competitiveness, he made up a story about LeBrafford Smith. It never happened. Michael Jordan himself admitted, yeah, the LeBrafford Smith thing never happened, where some rookie LeBrafford Smith scores like 36 points on Jordan, and Jordan played them the next game. The Bulls played them the next game. And Jordan was like, yeah, I'm going to give this kid in the first half where he scored the entire game. And so LeBrafford Smith, I believe, scores 37 in, in the game, and Jordan scores 36 in the first half. And it was just something where he couldn't probably admit that the kid had a great game and that he that LeBrafford Smith outplayed him. So he uses a slight, a perceived slight, a made-up slight, that LeBrafford Smith walked off the court and told, hey, Mike, great game and so he completely makes this story up to have motivation and desire to log through another 82 game season and also if you look at bj armstrong what he did with the hornets where the bulls win game one but bj armstrong is like i know this system i know how to beat it and so bj armstrong has a great game too and he hits a big clutch shot to ice the game and he yells and celebrates right in front of the bulls bench i mean the entire bench is within 10 feet of him and so he celebrates, and Jordan uses that. He watches the clips over and over again. He, you can see him in the documentary watching Sports Center of B.J. Armstrong yelling towards the bench and celebrating. And Jordan uses that and absolutely destroys B.J. Armstrong and the Hornets the rest of the series. And they ultimately dispatch of the Hornets. Now, this is during the 72-10 and 10 year. And another thing, speaking to Michael Jordan's competitiveness and his mindset, is when they play the Sonics in the finals that season, after getting revenge on the Magic, which Jordan said was a very big driving point to him, which take the Magic out. 
But they played Seattle in the finals right after that. And before the series, Michael Jordan is at a restaurant where he sees George Call, who's the coach of the Seattle Sonics. And they have a past. They're both North Carolina guys and have a Dean Smith connection and that sort of thing. And George Carl walks right past their table and doesn't say anything to Mike. And Mike Chase is like, okay, I say you want to play this? That's how we're going to play. And he just starts destroying the Sonics. And it's almost like a personal attack at George Carl. Like, you didn't want to shake my hand. You didn't want to acknowledge me. So you're going to have to acknowledge me on the court. But Gary Payton was not guarding Jordan. In the beginning of that series, George Carl told Gary Payton that he wanted him on offense. He didn't want to have him chasing around Michael Jordan, even though Gary Payton was a defensive player of the year. He didn't want to have him chasing around Jordan all series, getting tired and not having him on offense. So when they went down 2-0 or 3-0, Gary Payton basically said, screw you, George Carl, I'm going to go play. I'm going to go guard Jordan, and we're going to change the series around. He guarded Michael Jordan for three games. Michael Jordan did not play well on any of those days. Gary Payton affected Jordan. But when Jordan saw the clip of Gary Payton saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I tired him out, I wore him down. He threw his head back in the heartiest laugh. I've ever seen a professional athlete laugh at somebody else saying something about them. I mean, it was hearty. It came from the stomach. He truly believes Gary Payton had no effect. And it was just because it was coming around Father's Day, which is ultimately when Jordan won his fourth championship on Father's Day, his first championship without his father in his life, his first finals without his father. And it showed the famous clips of him on the ground crying that we've never heard the audio to before. We've only ever seen the visual picture of him crying. We may, we may have seen video, but there was no audio. And to hear Jordan audibly sobbing was really touching and really heartbreaking. And it was something that showed that that was a struggle for him to even come back. And so in episodes nine and 10, we're going to see the true last dance. It should be strictly the last season. Maybe we'll touch on ring five, but it should be strictly the last season where they play the Jazz in the finals and Reggie Miller's Pacers team pushed them to seven, which Reggie himself said he still believes they should have beat the Bulls that year. So I can't wait to see that. And up next, we'll start touching on football when we'll start off with a little bit of Dak's contract. guys and we're back now we're going to talk about a little football i got a little long winded there about the last dance documentary but in my opinion those are by far the best too but now we're going to move on to dak prescott's still unsigned contract with the cowboys i believe at this point is a simple negotiation over years years matter a lot to both sides in terms of the cowboys perspective if they're going to guarantee dak prescott 110 to $120 million fully guaranteed, they wanna stretch that cap hit over five years. You can move the money around and play with the cap to where it's only affecting you over five years. For instance, if Dak were to sign two franchise tags, he would get $31 million this year and a hair under $38 million next year. That'll give him six to $9 million fully guaranteed. That'll be cap hits of $31 million this year and $38 million next year as opposed to they gave him $120 million fully guaranteed, stretched over a five-year period, that reduces the cap hit $24 million. And then you could front load that, 
and get out of the contract relatively unscathed after three years, similar to a situation like Jared Goff in the Rams and Aaron Rodgers with the Packers. If you front load the contract, you can get out of it within three years fairly unscathed. But in terms of that, he wants four years. A, it increases his monetary value and increases his guaranteed money and how fast it comes. Also, it gets him back at the free agent table at age 30, which will be renegotiating his contract at age 29. And that'll give him another chance to maybe then sign a five-year deal for a lot of money. But both sides need, in my opinion, to get this done sooner rather than later. I believe that Dak Prescott needs to either sign his franchise tag quickly, get into the offseason program, get ready to go into free agency for next year by having another good year. Because he did throw for over 4,900 yards and he threw for over 30 touchdowns. Now they went 8-8, eight and eight, but some of that was on the team. Some of that could have been on coaching and Jason Garrett. And I think that he'd want to show that adding a weapon like CeeDee Lamb and you still have Zeke and you have Amari Cooper and you have Michael Gallup, you no longer have Jason Whitting, which is an upgrade in itself. You now have an athletic young tight end in Blake Jarwin. Your offense line is mostly intact. But you can still have a great season, come out and maybe go 10-6 and six this year and renegotiate again. But for Dallas' case, getting his contract done now, I think is even more important if they're concerned about cap flexibility. Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and Deshaun Watson are all due for contracts soon. Due to the nature of NFL contracts, and most contracts in general, but definitely NFL, with no max contract, it has become a situation where you sign for more than the next guy if you're in that echelon. So, for instance, players are deemed to have to take a contract a certain way. When Kirk Cousins hit the market, it was almost said openly that the NFL PA was pushing for Kirk Cousins to get a fully guaranteed deal because they wanted to set the market that if you're going to do a short-term contract for a top-level player, that contract has to be fully guaranteed. They didn't want Cousins taking a three-year, $90 million deal with $60 million guaranteed because they didn't cut him out the two seasons, and then the franchise tag looked like a great idea on behalf of the owners. But because he took a three-year, $84 million fully guaranteed, and then he renegotiated early to add more years and more fully guaranteed money, it was a great move and a great thought by the NFLPA and players in general for helping push the market further. Now, Patrick Mahomes is going to get, in my estimation, five years, about $225 million, with about 170 fully guaranteed when he signs name on dotted line. He has a Super Bowl championship. He has a league MVP. In my opinion, he's the favorite or the second favorite to win MVP again this year. And he's very, very young. He's only he's going to be his third year of starting. And so because of that, he's going to want to push the contract to where his contract isn't obsolete by the time the new CBA and TV money kicks in. Lamar Jackson possesses a league MVP. He possesses arguably the best skill set of a quarterback in the league, having his ability to run better than 95% of the running backs in the league. And he has a top 10 arm as well. And because of which he'll sign for five years, $200 million, average about $40 million a year. And reports have already started to come out about the Texans and Deshaun Watson negotiating a contract between $40 and $42 million a year. And due to these salary numbers, you hear Dallas offering something on line $35 million. And you can understand why Dak Prescott is turning down those contracts. And he's looking like, okay, I have a better resume than Deshaun Watson. I've won two divisions. I have a rookie of the year. I have a playoff victory. And I have led my team with no incidents. I'm a face of a franchise. Deshaun Watson is too. But Dak Prescott does have a better record and a better overall resume than Deshaun Watson. 
he can look at a guy like Lamar Jackson, who even though he does possess an MVP award, does not possess a playoff victory, which is something that Dak Prescott has on his resume. So that's why Dak Prescott's market value at this moment should be around $40 million a year, which I think in order to get that, he may have to compromise on his year demand of wanting five years instead of four. I don't see Jerry Jones signing a contract with Dak Prescott for five years, $200 million, but I think he can get somewhere around five years, $180 million. He has compromised a little bit on the money in order to get his years. Or he does a four-year, $160 million contract with about 110 to 115 fully guaranteed. But if, let's say, Lamar Jackson or Deshaun Watson signs first and they sign a five-year, $200 million deal and they're the first ones to go, then Dak Prescott's price tag immediately goes up because he's not going to sign for $5 million less a year on a deal that's going to be already rendered obsolete because it's going to be behind the curve. And on top of that, when the new CBA money kicks in, the next wave of quarterbacks are going to jump even further past that. And so I think for Dallas's say they need to hurry up and get this contract signed. They need to come to him, I believe, with a close to fully guaranteed contract. Maybe if they want him to sign the five-year deal, they can sign him for five years, $180 million, and guarantee the first four years. Guarantee $140 million of the contract, $145 million of the contract when Dak Prescott signs his name. It's different than what the media perceives as guaranteed money. Guaranteed money and fully guaranteed money are not the same. Guaranteed money is when, you know, they have stipulations to it. Like you're on the team the second day of the new league year, then you're guaranteed $20 million. Or if you get hurt, you're guaranteed $40 million. As opposed to fully guaranteed when he signs his name is when he signs his name, Rain Dakota Prescott in that case, that he's getting, regardless of what happens, $120 million. And that is something that Jerry Jones is going to have to come up to, I believe, in order to get Dak done. He says it himself, when you've ever known me not to get one of these done, he got Zeke done right before the season started. He got Demarcus Lawrence done. He got Amari Cooper done pretty quickly. He got Jalen Smith early. He paid that offensive line. And so we'll have to see what he does with Dak Prescott or if he's willing to go into the season with Andy Dalton. That was a big move for the Cowboys, having a great veteran backup in Dalton, along with having somebody that if the Dak Prescott thing lingered into the season, you have somebody from the Dallas area who currently lives in Dallas, and that's somebody that can play. He won 50 games in his first five years as the Bengals starter. And so that's a feather in Jerry's hat, having a guy like Dalton running around and learning the system. And so if Dak takes this into the season, then maybe they can win some games with Andy Dalton and alleviate some of the leverage that Dak currently has. But all in all, I think both sides need to get this done. It's better for the Cowboys if Dak's on the center. It's better for Dak if Dak's on the center. It'll help him with branding and also help him financially. He's only made, I think his biggest annual salary was like $1.5 million, if that. And so this would be a big jump for him financially. And all in all, I think it would be better for his career. And coming up after this short break, we're going to talk about the world of sports trying to reopen and coming back to some sense of normalcy for the upcoming seasons. All right, guys, and we're back with the final segment of this week's podcast in which we're going to be discussing this world of sports trying to reopen. We had a very successful event last weekend with the UFC. It showed massive ratings, and even with no fans, the viewing experience wasn't that different. It did allow you to hear 
the hits a lot more than you would with the crowd yelling and screaming. And that honestly quantified why I never thought about doing combat sports. That is a very violent event. And being able to hear every punch and every kick and even hearing the corner instructions show the mindset of a fighter and further illustrates what a UFC fighter goes through every time he enters the octagon. Fighters were saying post-fight that they could even hear Daniel Cormier, who's a legendary UFC fighter and a no-doubt Hall of Famer, that they can hear him telling them what they should do. And they were changing how they were fighting based on what Daniel Cormier was seeing. Because even though they have trainers and they have cornermen, there's nothing like getting it from a fighter who's actively on the fight game. And although he's on the fringe of retirement, he's one of the best to ever do it. And so they were saying even hearing him shout out different instructions or yelling or reacting to what they should be doing, commentating the fight, that they were changing how they were fighting based on what he was saying, and it was actually helping them in the fight. We have NASCAR opening this weekend, we, which I believe was a sport that was very interesting. I think they were trying to wait out the fan rule, but they're in cars. All the guys, some of the pit crews are wearing full suits anyway. There's little to no physical contact in NASCAR. They're sitting in a car, driving around, doing laps. So it was very interesting that NASCAR decided to sit out as long as they did. The same thing goes for drag racing with the NHRA. Same concept, except instead of going around in laps, they're going straight. And it's very interesting that they've decided to sit out as long as they have. But maybe again, they're trying to wait out the fan rule. But the NHRA president has said that they are not racing without fans. So I'm not sure there'll be an NHRA season this season, or unless he decides to back off that statement. He may be trying to force the different states into allowing fans even some kind of rule of six feet social distancing in states like Florida and Arizona, which has already opened back up to professional sports. And now the NBA has become the league that everybody is watching in terms of the sport they think should come back because it had the most on the line, given that all they had left effectively was their playoffs. Now a conference call was held by Chris Paul, who was the president of the Players Association, between him, LeBron, a very vocal Kawhi by all reports, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Dame Lillard, and they all spoke about and agreed to their willingness and want to continue the season if and when it becomes safe. Now there have been disputing reports from Wolves and Sham Taranya that the NBA PA regional representative has been texting players, including some in group chats, and that text is just a simple yes or no question of if players want to continue the season. Now, Adam Silver has come out and said that the collective bargaining agreement, also known as the CBA, was not meant to handle a pandemic. It's not meant to supplement income for two months without basketball. It's not meant to not have playoff revenue or not have the finish of season revenue and still guarantee player salaries increase the way they're supposed to, still guarantee contracts, still guarantee the salary cap will even increase next year. And a lot of the owners cannot pay a luxury tax and still sufficiently run their team. That's why you see smaller markets like Memphis and stuff like that. Even New Orleans for a long time, even New Orleans currently, tries to avoid the luxury tax at all costs. That's why Charlotte let Kimball Walker go because they couldn't afford to pay him and build a decent team around him without going in the luxury tax, especially for a team that wasn't guaranteed championship revenue. And so due to the NBA CBA not being able to sustain something like a pandemic, it would be it would give the owners a doomsday out, which when they can tear up the CBA and renegotiate it entirely, which could lead to a lockout like we saw in 2011. And nobody wants that. And so if they get to finish the season, I believe the players should do that for their sake and the sake of the fans. 
Chris Paul being the player association's president is going to carry a lot of weight in the decision making. Commissioner Adam Silver has stated that he's opening up facilities and allowing facilities to be open and states to have loosened their stay at home policies. And so it may give competitive advantage to some guys who may not have access to a goal at all, cannot go to their team's gym and shoot around. Uh, CJ McCollum of the Trailblazers expressed his dislike for that, considering that one of the rules is that your spotter for weightlifting has to be 12 feet from you, which is virtually impossible. He's not spotting at that point. He's basically there watching you lift weights, which is something that they can do at home. But maybe access to a goal for guys like Trey Young, who's at home with his parents, or Steph Curry had to build a goal in his driveway. That could be something differently where they can now go into their facilities and shoot you know, by themselves or maybe bring somebody else to go to the other half of the court and they can shoot and get their work in. Now, Major League Baseball is going through a bit of a crisis. Their season never started and baseball doesn't have a salary cap. They don't have max contracts. They don't have anything referring players money. Besides, they do have a luxury tax on owners if they go over excess amount of millions of dollars. But if you're a team like the Yankees, the luxury tax, especially if you're winning, is not worth not paying CC Sabathia and Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter and all those guys in order to keep winning championships. Also, Major League Baseball has the strongest players union in professional sports, and that is causing a lot of disagreements with the owners about whether they want to play the season, how the season is going to be played, and how the financial structure is going to be set up. Scott Boris, who is the agent of Major League Baseball, has said all of his clients want to play, but all of his clients also want to play for their maximum salaries. They want to play for the contract they were signed to, and so they may be willing to reduce games somewhat in order to get a full salary in. Or maybe even play the full schedule, very compacted. Maybe adjust schedule for one year, short and spring training next year, stuff like that. But they want to get their full salaries in. One of the players who expressed this openly and aggressively is starting pitcher Blake Snell of the Tampa Bay Rays, who flat out said he's not playing for a reduced salary. He signed his name on the contract and he wants to play for that full salary. He will not play for a reduced salary, especially if they were discussing already enacting a clause where they can reduce the salary by 15%. He was saying that they also want to come to him and take another maybe 50% of his salary away and that he basically could have just waited and not played at all this season. He'd rather not play at all than play for a reduced salary. Now, baseball has several plans, which is the 80-game schedule and having a universal designated hitter. Maybe they have a situation where they play 115 games. Uh, 82 games is a popular number. They just lop off 100 games. But they seem to not have a viable plan of reopening. Uh, baseball is a situation where you see it in other countries. They're playing baseball right now. And it's a situation where I think that that is a sport that honestly could come back fastest and with the most sense because you're not sharing a ball, in essence. Everybody's wearing gloves. Pretty much, you look on a baseball diamond, everybody's spread out anyway. And then if you're testing players daily, you're testing them possibly every other day or maybe up to a week if you don't have the viability of test to go that quickly. And if a player tests positive for the virus, he's out for two weeks. Baseball is not a sport where they have 16 games. It's not like a football player contracting it and missing an eighth of his season. Or a college football player contracting it and missing a sixth of his season before he could be cleared to come back. Baseball, you may miss 10 games, but you still have 120 left, let's say, to have in this short season. And it won't mess you up too bad, considering that most baseball players don't play every day anyway. They may play out of 162 games. They may play 120, 130. 
And so missing two weeks to give their body a chance to recuperate, give them isolation and protect the rest of the team. But all in all, baseball is struggling, in my opinion, the worst right now to get restarted because of the strength of their players union. Adam Silver of the NBA has the ability to say, we're going to reopen on this date. You have three weeks to prepare. We're going to go right into the playoffs. And we're going to play it at Las Vegas and Thomas and Max Center. Are we going to play it at Disney World in Orlando? Or he has the ability to say, we're going to cancel. Uh, Rob Manfred, who's the commissioner of baseball, has to go. Everything has to go through the MLBPA because of how strong their players union is and how much control the players union really has over baseball. And so those two sports have two very conflicting ideas of how to start. Basketball is worried about safety. And they should be a little bit more about their collective bargaining agreement. But publicly, they're worried about safety. Baseball is a public worried about their financials. Those guys are in baseball. They have the biggest contracts. They have the longest contracts. And they have the most power due to the length and the size of those contracts. And so it is understandable that baseball is worried about their financials a little bit more than basketball players are. But all in all, guys, this is a great episode. I hope you guys had fun. I hope you guys learned something. Please tell your friends or your sports rivals if you want to teach them some facts. Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Just In Time Sports. Follow the Twitter at JTime Sports. And have fun with the rest of your day, guys. And thank you for listening. <laughs>